0: we <laughs> This is Talk Is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine.
1: Good morning, steve
0: How's it going, my friend?
1: Good, good. So we just finished up a great podcast with uh, Laura Bailix. Um, that, was, that was a lot of fun, actually.
0: Oh, it was great. I wasn't sure what to expect. Uh, she reached out to us after the launch of the Act Now campaign and sent a pretty emotive email. So we, yeah, it, it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, right on. So we're coming off our uh, wild sheep salute to conservation that we had. Um, I guess it'll be two weeks ago now and uh, just a fantastic event. Uh, and thanks to you and our entire team, um, everyone pulled together and, uh, you know, the, the feedback's been fantastic about Absolutely. the event itself.
0: It went, it yeah. went it smashed it out of the park. Like it went, uh, our, our first virtual, well, second virtual event, but to this level, wow.
1: I, the whole team came together and uh, can't say enough good things about how it went. Well, what amazed me was, uh, you know, at a normal show we'd have about four hundred people, and I kind of thought, you know, if we get half that, you know, be it online, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, you know, be, but uh, we smashed it. I think four hundred and eighty people registered, yeah. and um, in the end, uh, the show itself, not including our raffles, uh, we're around one hundred eighty thousand dollars in uh, in revenue. So,
0: that's you know,
1: that's it's a big deal. That goes a long ways to wild sheep conservation, the province. It really makes a difference. And if it if it wasn't for the support of our uh, members and and supporters, we couldn't do what we did, and and that was just such a big part of what we're doing in terms of fundraising, right?
0: Oh, definitely. And I know our uh, we were sitting on pins and needles as uh, the the countdown came on to watch these videos go go live. It was okay, okay, all right, we're good. And then it was like, yeah. all right, we're good. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. we made it. <laughs> and it was, it was good. We'd love, we'd love to hear uh, those that attended feedback, fire us an email communications or exec at and let us, let us know what you thought. Uh, any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to change or see. Hopefully next yeah, year we're in person. Hopefully next year we're yeah. in person. However, if not, we, we need to know these, uh, these things that you'd like to see.
1: Well, one thing we're working on right now is kind of a sheep hunter university or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, something that we're going to offer. We're working on this. No guarantee it's going to happen. I've had some dialogue with Nolan over at the journal, uh, but offering kind of a one-day session or seminar, um, you know, for our members and anyone that wants to to participate on, you know, on sheep hunting and and kind of the soup to nuts on it. But we just, that horn aging is such a vital component. Um, And, you know, what we thought is... You know, get a professional like Clay in there and, you know, he can do his video, but then also have an interactive session where yep. it's a webinar type scenario where people can ask questions. Um, Clay is so good on that. Um, haven't reached out to Clay yet, but he's been super supportive and he's always doing his part to, you know, he, he's as passionate about uh, mature sheep on the mountain as we are. So... Um, you know, it's a great fit there. So, you know, hopefully Clay, we'll get something Clay, if
0: together. You're <laughs> if you're listening, clear.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and no. so with that in mind, like you as our listeners, get back to us, give us some feedback, what you'd like to see. Obviously, it's like, um, you know, horn Angels is clearly a part of it. Probably a gear talk, um, you know, you know, choosing areas, you know, stuff like that. Obviously, we're not going to put any X's on the map, but, you know, just having some dialogue, you know, for maybe the, the new sheep hunter, but then also through to somebody yeah, who's been in the field a long time and talk about relevant what, stuff. What do you
0: look for in a base camp type area? Uh, how to source water, filtration, just everything like that. Some Somebody like me who's done a lot of camping and backcountry exploring, but I've never gone solo or into the bush for 10 days on a fly-in. Well, not yet anyway, that's coming this year. But, Little things like that, and I thought you said you're going to write an X on a map for me, <laughs>
1: of course, buddy. Of course, yeah. there's no I, sheep. I, need, I need one for myself. I haven't killed a sheep in five
0: there, years. There's no so sheep, I, I'm in not Stanley exactly Park. the guy. Why am I hunting Gross Mountain? <laughs> yeah. You didn't say there'd be sheep yeah. there, you said you draw a map,
1: an X on a map, right? So we're good, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, one thing I will say, um, on a serious note, with Back to the Wild Sheep Salute to Conservation, thanks for everyone that stepped up and support our volunteers. Um, obviously all the people that registered and that were part of our event and our, just the hats off to our donors and sponsors. Yeah. Um, th- there was the five major sponsors that they kicked in five figures plus, um, to make this happen. So, um, obviously, uh, Sitka's first and foremost, there's a conservation partnership. All, they've always been our biggest supporter. And then we also had, um, Stone Glacier, Yeti, uh, Barney Sports Chalet and, uh, Precision Optics. So, um, fantastic support there and, um, Yeah. Just can't say enough to everyone that donated to, because without the donations, we couldn't do it either. We need all of it. We need every part of this puzzle. If one's missing, then we can't do it. Right. right. Completely agree. All right. The show. um, This is an awesome talk. It was a great one. I really enjoyed our dialogue with uh, Laura Balix. Laura, uh, she's a graduate. Um, She's uh, has a bachelor of natural resource science from Thompson rivers university. Um, she took a, a brief hiatus and then decided to go back and do her master's. Um, she's currently doing a, a thesis. It's a re- her research summary is the spatial ecology of mountain goats in cathedral provincial park. Um, that's being done under Adam Ford at UBCO. Um, so just a fantastic talk with Laura. She's a non-hunter, but she understands the importance of science-based wildlife management. Uh, she reached out over our act now campaign. You guys are going to hear all about it, but, uh, really enjoyed this talk with Laura very knowledgeable young lady and I, I see her doing big things in the wild wildlife world in the in the next three or four decades absolutely. in British Columbia absolutely was privileged to talk to her absolutely so with that over to Laura Balix uh, Balix sorry and uh, enjoy the show if we told you tomorrow that elk black bear and bighorn sheep were next would you speak up Wildlife needs to be managed by science and not by emotion. And you don't have to be a hunter to take part in this movement. You just have to want sound management of our wildlife in BC. Go to wildcheapsociety.com slash act now to use your voice and demand that BC not use our wildlife as pawns in a game of social management. Act now. Or the things that you love could be next. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing? Good morning. It's great uh, having you on the podcast, Laura. So are you in the Okanagan right now? Where are you talking to us from?
2: Yeah, I'm actually on UBCO campus based out of Kelowna right now.
1: Okay. So obviously that's home currently. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there and what uh, what your level of involvement is and, and what uh, what you're involved in through UBCO?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess it's a little bit of background on me. I grew up in Kamloops, British Columbia, and I also did my undergraduate degree at Thompson Rivers University there. So I do have a Bachelor of Natural Resource Science. And then through that experience, I had some experience working with the government um, in the Fish and Wildlife branch and realized that I sort of needed to do a master's degree if I really wanted to have a long term career in the in the in the area of work. Um, I Took a semester off of my undergrad and then decided to head back to school in the the fall of 2019 at UBCO. Um, So right now. I'm in my second year of my master's degree um, in Adam Ford's, Dr. Adam Ford's Wildlife Restoration and Ecology Lab.
1: Okay, and what's your master's in, what are you focusing on, uh, what's your primary study there, Laura?
2: Yeah, so uh, my focus is on wildlife biology and specifically I'm working with human mountain goat interactions in Cathedral Provincial Park and how recreation and helicopters are influencing habitat use and movements in the park.
1: Wow, fantastic. Um, so that's part of your master's program. So you're, is that your thesis then? Is that what you specifically your thesis and, and your, and is that yours exclusively? Or how does that work in the science world?
2: Yeah. So BC parks is actually running the project. It's really cool. They're funding me as well as the project through the BC parks license plate program. So it's cool seeing all those license plates that are driving around on the roads, actually at work, um, getting real research done. And so yes, they have hired me through the university to do this work. So this work is entirely my own and I'll sort of be the first to publish on it um for the time being.
1: That's fantastic. So just out of curiosity, was there any Mitac funding through this at all, through for that study? Do you know any involvement with that?
2: No. Um there was talk of of it, but we just ended up just going through BC Parks.
1: Okay, cool. So and on, yeah. Is the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance involved with the project at all? I think that they were they initially were involved anyway
2: yeah yeah um i mean we we although our funding my funding directly isn't coming from some of the stakeholders a lot of people are involved, so the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance did give us some money um which we actually used this this uh just yesterday to go out and pick up that mortal that goat mortality um so yes, we have funds from other people but holding on to them for specific reasons.
1: Right on. So um, do you mind jumping into that project? That's such a cool project. And obviously, you know, there's this affects wild sheep too, which is, you know, obviously our mainstay, but obviously we care about all uh, ungulates and all species on the mountain. So do you mind talking a little bit about the project and what's involved and and some of your early findings maybe?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. So my whole project stemmed sort of from this realization that these mountain goats were coming in and were becoming habituated to people in the campground. So in the summertime, it's not unlikely that you'll open up your tent in the morning to a mountain goat um, hanging out in your campground. They really aren't that scared of people and they come really close. And this is because they're attracted to an anthropogenic salt source in the campground being human urine and salt, which is kind of hilarious, but it is an issue. Um, We've seen it being an uh, issue in other parks as well, such as Valhalla Provincial Park here in B.C., as well as Glacier National Park and Olympic National Park in the States. And so Cathedral sort of wanted to be proactive with their management and sort of nick this in the butt before it became a, a real issue with these goats. As well, um, there is helicopter training, helicopter flight training permitted in the park, and the permit is currently up for renewal. So uh, the findings of my research will sort of determine if the permit will be amend- amended or um, perhaps canceled altogether. So.
1: So that permit, is that a parks permit or is it a a Flinroe permit, like a Ministry of Wildlife? How does that work?
2: It's a private permit through BC Parks. So the helicopter company has a permit with BC Parks to operate this training um, in Cathedral, in Snowy, in Okanagan Mountain Park and a couple other protected areas in Okanagan.
1: Okay, so... Um, you know we 've seen this in the past with uh, mountain goats and you know heli skiing's a big one, right affecting mm-hmm. uh, these patterns. Have you seen any early findings about effects on that? Is there anything you can talk about? I know a lot of the stuff you can 't talk about till after your report's <laughs> published but uh, can you talk to any of that on, on terms of any any in terms of any findings at all
2: um, findings not so much quite yet because I have been focusing more on the habitat use and recreation side as of now, getting to the helicopter stuff in the coming months but Preliminary analysis has shown that helicopter flight activity, as well as landing locations, do overlap consistently with habitat, po- with winter range polygons, as well as mountain goat home ranges. Um, so certainly, we know that the goats are coming in co- in close contact with the helicopters. So it'll be interesting to see um, if there is movement in that.
1: Okay. Um when when might we see that report is that something that's due out in the next few months or is it years down the road type thing
2: um well i will hopefully be completing my uh defending my full thesis in august so that's with all the results and then after that i'll be working on my publication manuscripts so hopefully sometime in 2020 those will be out for the public Um, but my thesis will be available um, publicly as well through ubco
1: fantastic that sounds great uh, can we go back a little bit to like the human interaction and the and the the park and um, uh, what are you finding with that study and, and um, you know is there is there much conflict I know that that Olympia Range they actually did that transplant right uh, last yeah. year uh, because there was so much conflict um, and then you know there's competing terrain issues with wild sheep we've seen that in Wyoming but I guess this is more the non-consumptive user aspect of it so. Um can you talk a little bit about, you know, conflicts in the park and, and what, what you're seeing there and what you've found so far?
2: Yeah. Um what I what I have found so far is definitely the mountain goats are selecting for areas that are associated with human activity. So in the summertime we see them consistently going to the campground and using the using the trail network um to consume these sources. It's actually a little bit funny when we set a clover trap in the campground when we're collaring them, we actually just pee in the clover trap um, to use to use as bait and it really, really works. Um, as far as pushiness, aggression. And gotten that, far, that goats are actually being pushy towards recreators for this source, but they definitely aren't afraid to get really close to recreators. And I think what the park is just trying to figure out now is getting that evidence that yes, these goats are consistently selecting for this as well. um, There is some research going on out of Thompson Rivers University on the human aspect. So there's a postdoc talking to recreators asking them like, what are your interactions like with goats as well? Like if you have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, do you just walk 10 feet from your tent because it's dark and cold or do you actually make it to the outhouse? So it might obviously, it might even just be as simple as putting up more outhouses in the campground to sort of minimize this salt source that's just sort of everywhere right now
1: it's interesting so that kind of begs the question like the you know i guess we're in their back country so that's the mm-hmm. one aspect of it but the flip side is they're seeking us out as people because they are looking for that source mm-hmm. of salt so it's interesting. Is there any discussion around, and I know this is not really where you're going, but you know, an alternate source of salt, if you you know had salt blocks or that sort of stuff away from the campsites, are there any solutions there or not really?
2: Yeah. Um, actually, five years ago, I think it was, Parks put a salt block um, just sort of at the junction a couple meters away from the trail, and the goats are – they've taken the salt block away since, but the goats are there consistently and are digging at the dirt are digging at the ground to, to get to there. So I think that uh, creating like would work and if they kept on trailing them out and out further and further away from the park, um, it, would, it would work. However, I'm also seeing that the habitat around the park is just really appealing to these goats and they like the park area, the core park area where humans are for other reasons as well being um, the aspect of the slope the ruggedness of the slope. Um, I mean, yeah, so it, it could work. It could not work, but I think it would be worth trying for sure.
1: Cool. So now the study itself, like obviously you're measuring the interaction and you're keeping an eye on things. Um, is there coloring involved in, in range usage, usage and habitat usage? And and are you looking at all that or, or what's involved with the study?
2: Yeah, so um, I guess that's important to mention uh, to figure all this out. I am using GPS color locations so we have had 10 collars deployed in the park since July 2019 um, and only two mortalities in that time. And the the one collar has been redeployed on another female. Um, so we have six females collared and, we, collared and we had four males collared, currently only have three. Um, so all that happened in the summer of 2019 um, and yeah.
1: Okay, um, with the mortality, uh, do you, are you able to comment uh, uh, do you know the the reasons for the mortality? Was it predation? Was it um, you know fall, old age? What do you think the cause um, was
2: it there? It was um, actually starvation. This most recent one, um, he mm. was as soon as I put my eyes on him, I was like, "That is the smallest goat I've ever seen." He was so skinny; it was cra- crazy. Um, we cut him open, and sure enough, there was no muscle left on his bones. Wow. You could see its hip and spine bones just sticking right out in me pulled his rumen out and his rumen was only about the size of a mango. Um, so yeah, he had, he had a rough winter for sure.
1: So is there, there's just no forage there for him or was he just, uh, was he too old to get to where he needed to go to, to eat or what's the issue? There?
2: Um, I mean, we took a bunch of samples to send it in to see if there was perhaps something internally wrong with him, but we sus- kind of suspected that he was six years old. Winter kind of had an early onset down there and he might have just gone too hard in the rut and mm. didn't have enough fat resources stored up to make it through the winter time. So just a, mm. a rough year for that Billy.
1: No doubt. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's interesting. And the second one, do you have any, do you know what the cause of mortality was? Yeah, on that one so
2: well? she passed away uh, about two months after collaring and it was unfortunate too because she did have a kid and a yearling with her upon collaring but that was a suspected traumatic injury because um, they also just found her curled up sort of underneath a log um, in this Alpine bowl, and she had the nose and stuff. And so they sent it in and they said um, like internal injury. Hmm. Um, so she, pro- she might've fell or something, um, but yeah. Wow.
1: cool. So uh, the goats in that area, so you said that there's the three parks that you are working with um do you is it a stable population is it growing is it decreasing um is there more opportunity for more range use can it expand um what what are you finding there laura yeah
2: um so sorry to just just clarify my research is only happening in cathedral provincial park um the helicopters just had the like also fly in the Uh other couple areas um but no no worries um as far as the sorry the past four years that i have being in Cathedral, there's been a consistent number of about 30 40 goats in her. herd. Um, there are historical numbers of the herd being as big as 60 to 70, so there could be a decline happening. Um, the, I'm, I'm not too sure why. Um, however, it is interesting because these animals do cross the border, and so we actually have one male that crossed the border and went about 25 kilometers down south into Washington. And he's stayed there ever since, so we are assuming mm. that there is another herd down there as well, because why else would he just be living down there by himself right. so there could be some interpopulation movement happening as well
1: Didn't really- so for you as a um, as an in, uh, uh, conducting the study when you see that when you see your target animal disappear (laughs) 25 are you pulling your hair out or you're like okay well there's some useful data there that we can source so um what's your approach to that is is that kind of a menace to your study
2: (laughs) a little bit because although he's not completely lost on the on the data side he can't really be considered in any of the helicopter analysis and he's not really being influenced by human recreation um, so we kind of consider him a, a control animal, but it was sort of like, why can't you just stay here? Like we just collared you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so just out of curiosity, what happens? Like the study concludes, let's say you, you wrap it up at the end of the year. Um, obviously you're not going to go out and capture the goats and remove the collar. They're designed, I think, to eventually rot off, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you guys eventually, somebody go and try and retrieve those? You, you check on them from time to time? How does that work? Yeah,
2: um, so Parks is really involved they're going to continue collecting the data, of course, and um, who knows, perhaps maybe another grad student could jump on it in a couple of years and use the data for another analysis or um, something like that. But yeah, definitely if the collar falls off, go and collect the collar. Um, also, I'm actually going out and doing a census next week with parks to check on the rest of the herd. Um, so it's definitely in parks' best interest to make sure that the collars are in good shape and the goats are in good shape. And yeah, I think they want to keep the study going because it is a really unique place and a really unique opportunity for them.
1: That's fantastic. They're, they're being so proactive Mm -hmm. as well, right? That, uh, you know, if everybody had a chunk of land and was cared about the wildlife on there and wanted to see them thrive, we'd be in a much better world uh, than we are today. So that's fantastic that they're, they're being so proactive. Um, How's the funding? Are you guys good for funding? Do you guys, are you looking for funding support if somebody wanted to donate or, or support, you know, obviously the Gold Alliance is a great, mm-hmm. um, you know, advocate for that, but if somebody was listening and wanted to help out, can they do so or do you guys need money?
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, reach out to Dr. Adam Ford at UBCO. Um, if you're looking to support grad students, I mean, BC parks, buy a parks license plate. I know that sounds so funny, but clearly the money is being used for real conservation, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. And yeah, of course, like Wild Sheep Society BC helps us, Goat Alliance helps us. Um, and so, yeah, any support of those not, not-for-profits um, is always useful. And it's really cool seeing the different ways that the money is used.
1: Right on. So what's next for you? So you have this study, and you're doing your masters. When does d- does your masters conclude with your thesis? Uh, and and when you submit that, is that when you're done your your, your master's degree?
2: Yeah, yes. And
1: I guess obviously yeah. you got to go through the process. But
2: <laughs> yeah, so a master's degree. Just for anyone who sort of needs an, a, a, an idea of what that is, um, it's a two-year degree, and you're sort of given this mass, and that's your goal is to answer questions, analyze the data, and write a big paper about it at the end of it. Um, so. I will hopefully be defending my thesis, which will include introduction, methods, results, and conclusions of all the things that I've sort of been doing the past two years. Um, and then that's the conclusion of my master's. So that's when I get my degree. And from that is when I sort of start to create these manuscripts that are available for publication in journals. Um, so that kind of isn't really part of your master's it comes after in, like page wise. They're usually about 100 and paper, to 150 page wise, pages. Yeah. <laughs> so they're pretty, they're, it's not easy reading. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Or writing, no doubt. Crazy. So, so I, I don't think it was answered of all the animals out there in the landscape. what big, I what big had,
2: big big had my first experience with um, mountain ungulates in the summer of 2017 when I worked with the provincial government. And I worked with bighorn sheep on the Serapis ovus testing in the Okanagan Valley. And I just saw how rugged and hardcore and tough these animals were. Um, and then I went up to Cathedral for the first time that summer as well. And I saw like almost kind of like the step up, which was mountain goats. And I live in these areas where there's like windswept terrain. There's no food. Um, they mm. scale the sides of cliffs. And I was like, these are the coolest animals ever. And they're so beautiful. So. So that's why I hopped on this one.
1: That's pretty cool. That's awesome, awesome. Uh, Laura. So that's a great segue. So you talked about the 2017 um, wild sheep project you were involved in, um, Bighorns, and I think it was Region 3 the, is the one you were involved in. Um, first of all, I guess, how did you get involved with that? Um, what did that look like? How, how did you get invited and, and you know become part of that project?
2: Sorry, this is for the MOV stuff?
1: Yeah, for yeah. the movie stuff. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, so, from what I understand, was the um, company Filter Studios sort of got this funding from Wild Sheep Society to create this documentary, and they're looking for a student or someone who didn't really know a lot about MOV to kind of come along and and learn from um, the provincial wildlife veterinarian about MOV and sort of the lengths being taken to to combat it in the province. And so I got a call um, and sort of was asked, I said, um, and they were like, yeah, that's all good. Um, and I talked to my advisor about it because it was it was taking away time from my thesis, but we both agreed that it was a great opportunity to sort of get some hands-on management and also see what management was like in the province. Um, so I kind of hopped on the opportunity and went out to Lillooet, the Fraser Valley, which is where the Ah, uh, capture and call was taking place to partake, which was a really, really awesome experience.
1: Right on. So, yeah, for our listeners, the Wild Sheep Society of BC uh, received funding through HCTF uh, to do uh, a movie film, which is an awareness film around the disease issue in the province, wild and domestic interaction. Uh, Filter Studios is contracted to do that that film. So. Um, you know, we, we've been doing the work in uh, Region 3 and now Region 5 for trying to restore these bighorns on the Fraser River. And, um, you know, we've, this has been our biggest funding support to date through the Wild Sheep Society BC. So uh, we wanted to tell that story. Uh, we asked HCTF for funding. We've got a number of funding partners, including the Wild Sheep Foundation, Wild Sheep Foundation, Alberta, Yukon, um, a number of other funding partners as well for this, this film Um, So that's kind of the backstory. Now, the film itself um, was supposed to be out last year, no fault of our producers or our production team. uh, But basically, COVID's played a big uh, part of this. and, And Laura, you can attest to that. And we'll jump into that in a minute here. But uh, we just can't get people in helicopters. We can't get people on, out together because of COVID. So it's been delayed a little bit. We're hoping it'll be out um, in the next year here. Uh, but it's it's what, it's what very cool. It's an outreach video. I'm so excited about this. So so you're involved with that, Laura. So you get the phone call, you show up. Um, tell us about the experience. So you got a phone call from, I think Jesse probably reached out to you, was it not? Yeah. Uh... Yeah. So Jesse contacted you. Cool. So then you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. Where did it go from there? Like, I'd, I'd like to kind of hear the whole story <laughs> and the process, and and kind of some of the, the highlights and the lowlights of the whole experience.
2: Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> yeah. So
2: I hopped in a truck with um, Peter. Ooh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. What the ball. Gucci. Gucci. Yes. And we drove out. Gucci. Yeah. And we drove out to, yeah. <laughs> to Lilouette and uh met up with a big crew of a bunch of really amazing people um helen bios from uh kamloops williams lake um, so um some contractors um people from the wild sheep society and the film crew and we drove out to this beautiful parcel of land right along the fraser river this beautiful plateau and this is going to be the sort of the site that we did the capture and call on um, So at first, like the, I think every time you get a big group of people who are all like-minded like that together to do some hands-on wildlife management, the vibe is very excited and they're looking forward to this. But um, definitely as soon as the sheep started coming in from the helicopter and we started getting those positive test results, the emotion in the, in the, on the, on everyone was pretty heavy. Um, So what it sort of looked like was helicopter went out, net gunned some sheep, and then they brought them back for processing. Um, What we did was we took nasal swabs, ear scrapings, fecal, um, hair hair samples, everything that you would normally take, and then the animal was sort of um, put to sleep for about 45 minutes while um, the sample was processed. And this was really neat, the sampling, um, because I think this was the first time that we were able to actually get results back from OBI like within the hour Um, so there was actually like a remote sampling kit and then this either and then so the samples used were the nasal swabs and then this sample either came back as a positive or negative for for the disease and so the individuals that were tested positive unfortunately had to be euthanized on site by a um, bolt gun Um, for me that was an experience for sure I. I, mean, I, I don't hunt, but I've seen a lot of dead animals. I've uh, cut open a lot of dead animals. But watching these animals being killed um, yeah. for this was was really, really sad. Um, the emotion in, on everyone was really heavy. It was really hard watching these animals' lives being taken for this sort of issue, like an issue that isn't being, like, that, that can easily yeah. be fixed per- with the right policy. One, yeah. Yeah and like killing these young rams killing these pregnant ewes it was it was really sad like i cried <laughs> i have no shame in saying that i, I cried can only, I can only um, imagine. Yeah.
1: yeah yeah that's uh that's <laughs> heavy hey and it, you yeah. know it's it's interesting I, and i wanted to get your perspective cuz you know you you're steeped in science and biology and and you go through school and you and you're conditioned for that right mm-hmm. and i've seen some of those pictures and i could see you know i i didn't have the opportunity to be on the you know there for that that uh, experience, but you can see a lot of people that, um, you know, it seemed pretty emotional, but it was interesting. Like you see someone like Helen Swansha who's done this her whole career. This is all she's ever done. You know, how how difficult is that for Helen? You know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you'll ever get a, you know, if Helen even talks about it, she's always about the science, right? But uh, <laughs> there has to be an emotional aspect. So um, yeah, I wanted to hear your perspective because it, it looked like it was certainly a heavy experience. And I know talking to Peter, he said it was a, a really tough day. You know, you know you're know, you doing the right thing for wild sheep, but it was just yeah. so emotive. Um, and, you know, there's pictures of them. We haven't showed these pictures, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, removing fetuses and there's these unborn babies and stuff. It's just uh, yeah. heart-wrenching, right? It's so. crazy. Yeah. Like, I've never been on one
0: of these uh, these captures either. And when I look through the pictures, you can go, okay, this one here is sick. You can just see the mood in the picture on the people's face. It's... It it's emotive and it really, yeah, I, I just can't imagine the being on site because you can see it in the pictures.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So for you, Laura, you're on site um, and you're involved in this. And I know I've seen lots of pictures of you, you know, getting your hands dirty. What, what kind of stuff, what was your job, I guess, um, as part of the process? I know you were there kind of as a character, but you know, you're <laughs> also volunteering and working, right? So.
2: Yeah. Um, so I've sampled a lot of animals um, from the, Serapi's Ova stuff to, I mean, my own capture, uh, well, uh, my own um, participation in the capture and collaring of the mountain goats in my study. Um, so I'm really comfortable around wild animals, so I have no problem sampling them. So that was sort of my job was take the nasal swabs, get the samples, and, and get them to Helen.
1: Fantastic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So... You guys, how how many days did that process take? Was it a one day thing? Were we there for like a three, four days? How did that?
2: Um, I think I was there for four, and they and the rest of the crew after Peter and I left was up to five days.
1: Right. I think they okay. processed
2: the total of forty seven animals total.
1: Okay. I want to say. Do you, Do you remember how many were removed? I don't have that number. I'm just curious. I I don't recall what it was. Ah,
2: uh, there was. I don't have the exact number but it was close to 50 50 i want to say
1: it's all right yeah mm-hmm. that's incredibly high right so mm-hmm. um it's interesting that spring um the recruitment was uh, higher than historically um i think that one of the herds there was 53 lambs that uh was newly recruited so um it was a higher recruitment rate than they expected so you know that that's really positive it's exciting mm-hmm. um and it'll be interesting to see what uh, 2021 looks like with the, uh, the lamb recruitment there. Um, of course we were back in the field here this last week and, and went out and, uh, we're removing testing and removing where required as well. Right. So, uh, this is a multi-year project for us. I think it's four or five years. Actually, initially it was only three years. So we got one more year in, but, uh, so you spent the four days there and then this back to school and back to your thesis. Is that, or what did that look like? Were you working on your master's at the time or were you off?
2: yeah i was working on my masters at the time my advisor is incredible with getting us all to take these opportunities so it wasn't a big deal for me to take this week-long break from my thesis for him um, because this was a pretty unique and special opportunity as difficult as it was
1: yeah yeah for sure so overall any thoughts on that whole process any thoughts on the film Uh, any thoughts on disease domestic interaction Uh, obviously we want to a viable solution but you know any thoughts on that whole process and that whole experience i know you just did some filming this past week so what what are your thoughts there
2: yeah um i think that this sort of work and especially documenting it for the public is so important i have i know a lot of people in my family who aren't in the field as me aren't hunters and they don't know that these sort of things are an issue so i think that creating documentaries about it It was a really useful way to actually get public support and public um, knowledge of these important topics. Um, Yeah, although the although it was difficult to go through, um, I know that it was worth it for the betterment of the herd. And I know that getting these sorts of difficult topics out to the public will just make them care more and and sort of saying, like, look like these sheep are dying and this is really sad. And that's just going to make them care about it. And hopefully, so hopefully that we won't have to keep doing this 10 years down the road.
1: Yeah, well said, right? That's one thing that we always talk about. Did you, I I don't think you met him. Chris Barker is our projects chair and he's Mm -hmm. kind of the lead on the Movi project for us um, in the Fraser. And we always talk about this, like, look at the cost of what's involved with that small herd. You know, we spent, I think it was $160,000 budget and that doesn't include the film, of course, uh, Mm -hmm. but uh, $160,000 budget in year one, um, you know, what does it cost um, to to have these healthy sheep? So, you know, we got, we got to find some solution and, you know, obviously be very respectful of our, the domestic producers and, um, you know, and obviously we all know that the best scenario is to keep these sheep apart, but um easier said than done right so (laughs) yes
2: definitely yeah
1: Yeah. um interesting so okay well very cool um any other thoughts on that anything uh, anything you want to talk about on the movie subject i think we've covered a lot of it but uh am i missing anything i
2: don't think so i think that was a nice little summary
1: (laughs) okay cool fantastic so are you done like i know you did some uh, filter filming this past couple of days um. to try and wrap that up. Is there anything left on the horizon for that? Or are you all good there?
2: Um, I think I'm all good. When I said goodbye, I was like, thanks so much for this. And they reminded me that it's not over until they actually produced the movie. So okay. <laughs> I'm finished for now, but right. I might be seeing them again. <laughs>
1: Uh, Any desire to get back in the field for to see it again or um, like are you interested in doing any more work on that or do you you see your work moving forward more on the mountain goat side of things or what are your thoughts there?
2: Um, No, I would love to get out uh, more. Although I'm doing my master's on mountain goats, I know that I probably won't be working with them for for my whole life. So any experience with any animal, I'm always really, really keen to get on board with. If you have any extra work for me.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. Well, that's great. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm sure we do actually. Absolutely. Uh, We do. uh, Cool. So that kind of brings us to our next subject. Um, So actually, uh, you know, the way we connected and I knew about you and I knew of you, but you reached out. So wild sheep society, BC, you know, we, we launched our act now campaign, which was kind of in response to, um, you know, a document produced by the rain coast around um, social license to hunt. And, um, you know, the hunting community is a little bit upset about this and a little bit worked up about some of the, uh, you know the concepts of it um and uh so we you know we released our campaign and you reached out and said hey you know this is interesting we have some um uh, i guess mutual interests with regards to science here and you know we really think that's what we should be focusing on um and and, and you know you, you kind of were you brought up the point that you know is this an emotional campaign or should we just stick to the science and um, and you brought up some really good points. So I reached out to you and we had a, a really long discussion. I think we talked almost an hour on this and I think we're mostly in agreement with, with everything that we talked about. Um, so, you know, this is a great opportunity, I think for us to bridge that gap. Like obviously we're hunter conservationists. Um, you know, that, that's what we do through the wild sheep Society. Of BC. Obviously we're conservationists first, but
2: mm-hmm. mostly
1: funded by hunters. Um, and, um, You know, you've worked with us, you've seen the, the, uh, you know, the conservation side of things, and you kind of said, well, you know, why aren't we focusing on the conservation aspect, and why aren't we telling that story? And uh, I agree with you 100%, so um, love to hear your perspective on just, you know, our dialogue back and forth, and then we'll kind of jump into the nuts and bolts about, you know, how there's been this push away from science-based wildlife management. We'll get into that later, but let's, let's just talk about, you know, I guess, holistically about <laughs> our initial transaction. You sure. Yeah. Either, so.
2: um, I mean, I was really excited to see push for science-based policy. This is something that I'm really passionate about, especially as a young scientist. It's like, I want to see the work that I'm putting my life into actually go towards something. And I know that it's a, it's hard especially with so many other things going on right now it's hard to get these um, politicians focus on wildlife i think that it kind of ties into my whole idea of not one person or one stakeholder owns wildlife and it's owned by everyone and it's owned by hunters um, scientists the public just anyone who likes the outdoors and so seeing this sort of push of we as hunters need to rally up each other and push for this as hunters. I think I, I just felt that there was a lot of voices that you could have used that were missing from from that campaign. And I think that um, if you did include those voices in this, then it would be even stronger when it goes across your MLA's desk um, and perhaps get more more interest in that. So that was where I was coming from as a as a scientist and and not a non-hunter but who hunt but who supports hunting of course and uh I talked to some of my lab colleagues about this and they and they were in agreement and so that's when I sort of decided to write up that email just to not to like say shame but to hopefully try to collaborate which I mean obviously has worked and I'm really happy that we're doing this.
1: Yeah and I I 100% agree and and really like right from the get-go when we before this campaign was released to the public, um, our committee sat down and we said, you know, there's a lot of vested interests beyond our community here, and we need to reach out and we need to build those those bridges. So, um, you know, you brought up a very good point, and and if you look at it from the outside, you're like, oh, well, these idiots are taking this on on their own, um, and you know, th- this is kind of, and I, I explained this to you earlier, but was the principle is. Um, internally, we are trying to build support for it, um, and make sure that hunters got involved. Um, but certainly, you know, mm-hmm. we think that everyone affected by a move away from science based wildlife management should be involved. So cer- certainly the science community first and foremost, right. As a scientist, to me, th- and a biologist that would be like, Hey, like to me, this would be really bad when I see a, a paper like, uh, Raincoast published there. But also a number of other, you know, stakeholders and user groups like, uh, you know, industry professionals, you know, you look at the ag industry, right? If you don't have that ability to manage predation, um, you know, that's a huge issue for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just goes on and on and on and on beyond that. So um, we totally Mm -hmm. agree with you. And I think we're on the same page um, with regards to that. So now I got a question for you, Laura, Um, with regards to the science community, when you see a a document come out from Raincoast like that, you of Vic, that you know there it's academia it's science it's biology and then you see a paper like that like how does your community react like i know how you reacted you're like you know we need to stick to science but how does the community and i know yeah. you know government biologists it's tough for them because they yeah. they can't they can't say anything right they they can't say they disagree or they they can't take a position basically it's part of their contract but you know on a holistically your community how do you guys react to something like this when you get a paper
2: yeah, um, like um, of course up. it sparks conversation and I, I I am in a very collaborative lab where we have lots of different voices and half of us don't hunt and I think throughout my scientific career I've had to sort of find where my own voice is in that um, and I definitely try to see things from all different aspects and all different sides. So when this paper was published I I know some of the hunters in my lab got kind of up in arms as well, um, feeling a bit threatened, uh, but we also had to consider and we discuss sort of like so there, he did have some good points and he did have some good solutions. And, um, although he sort of took his anger out on the hunter side, I do think that, being that a lot of wildlife enthusiasts aren't hunters and hunters do sort of make up a small population of um, of the, of, of British Columbia and um, I think, so I think in him trying to get these other voices included, he kind of had to be mean to this other group of people who really are good for the hunting community. Um, and I also, like I know, I don't think that there is on the table currently in British Columbia any bands that are coming up, is that correct? I'm sure you guys would know more, but this hasn't really sparked any movement politically, has there, in terms of banning wildlife hunts?
1: No, I don't think uh, Deramont's paper, that Renko's paper, specifically has precipitated anything, although there has been talk. Obviously, we've seen the premier uh, last month talking about Mm -hmm. this um, Takaya issue and about looking at changing wolf regulations for trappers and that sort of stuff. Um, But it certainly has sparked debate around it. Um, And and I guess kind of our argument for that is that, you know, with – the grizzly Mm -hmm. bear, we, we just kind of sat back and we didn't, we weren't proactive. We, we were, we're pretty silent about it and then a change of government and all of a sudden it ended one day and it was sort of too late. So, you know, we kind of felt that, you know, when people come out with, um, you know, information that we don't feel is reflective, um, you know, of, of science and, and Mm -hmm. you know, where we hang our hat on, you know, the one thing that the science, the, sorry, the wild, wildlife community hangs their hat on in North America is uh the North American wildlife model right so for conservation so that's where what we hang and and they do not support that the no. raincoast does not support that whatsoever and it's been a, a, an amazing success right we look at you know the the um, how wild sheep have rebounded uh, wild it, yeah. turkeys uh, yeah. white tail um, it's been very very successful right so it's, it's a model that's worked and they discount that model so now they come out with a new policy And, and like realistically, so just out of curiosity, Laura, if if they took, um, science out of the equation and and were managing wildlife, um, kind of on emotion or social values, like where do you see that going long-term? I'm just curious, like I, I have a perspective, Mm -hmm. um, but maybe I'm not a scientist. So I'd like to kind of know where you think if they were basing it, just, it was emotional or societal values. And the one thing Chris Daramont talks about quite often is, um, like individual animals, they look at individual animals where, you know, wildlife managers like yourself look at it as a population basis, right? So if we started doing that, you know, what does that do for wildlife?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think you just have to remember that everything in the landscape affects a a thousand other things. So if you take one thing out, then that's Mm going to have cascading effects. Um, I really hope that policy doesn't move completely towards emotional based, um, I can even think about in my study system, um, how kind of detrimental that would be. Um, if people like, if people come to cathedral to see goats, so we just let that habituation happen. And then mm-hmm. suddenly something someone has to, someone gets really hurt from a goat and then it's the goat's fault. Anyways, you can just like waterfall and there's so many different examples of where this is an issue. And um, I take, I mean, as yeah, I think we just all have to learn from past mistakes. We have to learn from what the grizzly hunt ban will do to populations, and hopefully this will, and hopefully this learning will make us hopefully go back on that eventually. Um, but yeah, I think losing science and policy would be really sad um, for populations and the landscape in general.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, one of the things that, you know, we've been reading about is, um, so Dr. Rob Soroya came up with an adaptive management strategy around caribou and that sort of supported the wolf call. And in June of 2020, um, then, uh, Raincoast came up with a paper, um, that was spearheaded by Chris Daramont that basically called into question that paper and, and said, we should uh, move to the ecotyping, um, principle around this, which was, which they were Mm -hmm. arguing that they should stop the call. Right. So, uh, but one of the things that, you know, some of the, I, I'm not sure if it was Raincoast or if it was Pack Wild, but basically said, mm-hmm. you know, just let caribou go. They're going to die anyway. They're the weaker species are going to go. So, you know, what's your approach? I'm curious to see, like, from a scientific aspect, what's your approach to something like that? Do we just give up on a species that's kind of a weaker species? Do we give up on the caribou? Do we give up on other species when, you know, there's a stronger species? Or do we fight for them? How? Like, what's what's the science's world science, science um, world approach caribou to something is a like very that.
2: hot topic in my lab we talked about it a lot so I'm not I don't study caribou I don't study wolves I don't study that system so I don't want to speak specifically to that but I will say with this whole thing especially with the fighting about wolves um, how right now this is I kind of agree with Rob on how right now the this whole wolf call is saving caribou for now However, this is the proximate cause and we need really realistically, we need to focus on the ultimate cause, which is forestry. And so I feel like making these wolf papers super popular is taking away and diminishing what actually needs to be in the public eye right now, which is that forestry and degrading habitat and taking away habitat is the root cause of all of this. And if we just fix that, then we would fix everything else, I think. So that's how I feel about that.
1: Yeah. So my understanding is uh, no question. I think that's the one thing where we will agree with Raincoast is that habitat's the issue, but, um, the short-term solution is predator management. So, you know, like, and I guess that's the question. If we see a long, t- if we see that there's something we can fix with habitat down the road, uh, it's probably, in my opinion, it's worth saving caribou for. We might as well, because the thing is w- wolves are not, at risk of there's nobody talking about wolf uh numbers being a concern on the too low side right that's just not an issue they're very um uh you know they have a high reproductive rate they're going to be back there and if you don't and, and i guess the counter argument is there's a lot of time money and effort spent in managing wolves because you have to do it every year it's not you just don't do it once and then it goes away so i get that aspect of it so but I guess for us is that, you know, to me, a, a caribou is worth fighting for. And, yeah, we need to change the habitat piece. And we should all be advocating for that. Um, and then, but also in the short term, let's manage wolves. But I think it was Pac Wild. I've got a statement from one of their directors that basically said, caribou's done, just let them die. You, know, you might as well let it happen short term instead of long term. And don't kill wolves in the interim. So I, and the problem is with wolves, they just don't stop at caribou. Once that source mm-hmm. of food's gone, then they move on to the next food source, where we have dwindling <laughs> moose Anyway, I mean, keep going uh, and
2: going and going. Yeah, I know. I definitely yeah. think caribou is worth fighting for. It's like, why, why would you just let mm-hmm. an animal that we've clearly let down go? Um, because we have to make these hard decisions. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's a slippery slope that way. Yeah, exactly. Like, hard Why to talk about. <laughs>
0: why, are, why?
1: are caribou not as important as yeah. the, the
0: cute and cuddlies, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I don't get it.
1: So we've got, we kind of got this divis- uh, divisive issue and, and, one of the things you said to me, Laura, is we got to do a better job of bringing people together and talking about conservation. So, you know, we've kind of got, you know, two people on the end. We got hunters on one side. We've got, you know, groups like Raincoast on the other that we both have our, you know, our perspectives. And then we kind of have the 85% in the middle. Um, so how, how can we move us and I, I don't think we'll ever sit side by side with raincoast and uh sing Kumbaya, <laughs> yeah. but how do we bring that movement together and and what can we do to you know to further our conservation movements um uh, to see healthy uh, animals on the landscape you know what what, what approach do we need to, from you from a scientist's perspective um uh what do we need to do differently to make this well, to do a better job um... loaded <laughs> <Rated> question
2: <laughs> yeah and i i mean i think that's just what like what humans are like like there will always be people on polar opposites and we have to like meet those people in the middle and try to figure out how to how to even out the sides but um I think that today people just don't know about wildlife issues and the general public just will hop on the first thing that they see and they'll hop on the first thing that gives them emotions right now people are getting emotional about wolves being killed for example Mm -hmm. whereas um they are kind of hiding the fact that, but caribou are also being killed because of this. So it's kind of like I feel like you have to get to the public early on and tell them sort of your side of things so that they can get on whichever train they want instead of just feeling that they need to go on the one that's the loudest, um, if that makes sense. And I think how we can do this, especially is through social media. Um I mean Instagram, Facebook, um, all like Twitter, um, there's lots of scientists there. and just bragging about all the good things that you do for wildlife because I know that a lot of people don't associate um, Wild Sheep Society of BC and like the Goat Alliance with actual conservation Um, and I know a lot of my friends I've bought like stickers for everyone of the Goat Alliance and I'm like support conservation like this is real action this is real money and not everything not every dollar that they spent is going towards hunting and you don't have to and also just helping those people who don't hunt understand that Hunting is conservation and, um, supporting groups that actually care about animals on the landscape.
1: Yeah. Well said. Yeah. It's, you know, we found it's, it's mm-hmm. tough to, to share that message, right. To get that message into, in front of us, you know, the, the non hunting public, you know, um, and just the conservation work we do. And it, that's the thing is the Wild Sheep Society of BC, we spent $270,000 yeah. last year on conservation alone. That's all, you know, um, and that's a lot of money on the ground mm-hmm. um, for wild sheep, right? And, you know, and, and hunters are doing that day in and day out everywhere, right? You look at how many uh, spring cleanups there are that, uh, you know, on the island here, there's there's dozens of, of groups that get together that pick up garbage and, and better the habitat, right? But um, it very rarely makes the news. It, it maybe does in these small communities. It maybe makes the local paper, but you never see it. You're not going to see it on the front <laughs> page of the Vancouver Sun ever, right? So um and that's when you know we do get that press about the good work we're doing for conservation um in some of these bigger publications it's it's fantastic right but um unfortunately we get you know a professor at um uvic that that basically calls comes in writes into the globe and mail and undermines Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do as hunters right so um yeah it's it's tough for sure so um (laughs) yeah yeah, we need to bridge that gap i think right um and i think i think certainly for the science community um you know you guys are our backbone we rely on you like if scientists say you're not going to hunt sheep we're not going to hunt sheep there's no debate it's it's not you know we're not going to fight you on it um you know if a politician says it we will fight it but if you say it because it's a conservation concern hunters Mm -hmm. are obviously always going to be the first ones to to stop it and you know I, i really think that the resounding success of wildlife management in north america is that at the heart of the hunting community you look at wild sheep um, and of course, backed by science, but um, hunters were were a big part of bringing those species Definitely, back in a number yeah. of cases, right? So anyway, <laughs> I'm off my soapbox. Um, so Laura, for you, um, what are your next steps? So you got your math? that'll conclude. Wh- when will you wrap up? When will you challenge your thesis? When do you see that being um, completed? Um, yeah, so I'm completed?
2: in the middle of data analysis right now. So we'll hopefully be finalizing my results um, by the end of April. And then from there, it'll be writing the thesis um, and then handing it into UBCO and the defense. Um, So hopefully we'll find a job. I'll honestly take a job doing anything (laughs) in September, Um, whether that be technician work, biology work, consulting work. I am not picky as of right now. Um, Yeah, I think in the long term, though, policy is very appealing to me because I like my voice being heard and I like making change and I think that a reason that science based policy is an issue right now is because not a lot of scientists are also politicians. So I would like to perhaps one day bridge that gap uh, there and and hopefully use both of my skill sets to to make that change myself and help others make that change as well.
1: So in the ideal world Laura you you challenge your thesis you you get the the, the green light, um, where, where would you like, like dream job, you walk out of the lab and you're going to go pick your job. Where, would it be? Um, what, what I are
2: you going to do? I grew up like well, I grew up in Thompson, Okanagan. Um, I love Penticton. I've loved Penticton mm. ever since I, I lived there in 2017. So the goal is definitely to go back there. Um, honestly, just working for the government as a wildlife biologist for a while, would be awesome. Love to get that survey experience, that hands-on management experience. Um, so that'd be really cool. Um, so, if you know anyone, <laughs> give me a good reference. <laughs> but, <yeah.
1: laughs> Absolutely. Any particular species that you'd love to work with? It Like you mentioned these mountain animals that are you find intriguing. Is that where you'd like yeah, to go? Yeah, I or definitely you have feel like I have an that...
2: affinity for ungulates now that I've learned so much about them. Um, I love their movements. I think they're really cool and beautiful animals. So um, I'd love to specialize with them. But I mean... I think all animals are cool, so I'll take anything.
1: Well, fantastic, Laura. Um, can't thank you enough for your time, um, and I, 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 have a feeling <laughs> we're going to see more of you. This isn't the last time. I have a feeling that there's some pretty cool things out there um, for you on the on the horizon in terms of wildlife management in the province. And uh, and I, you know, I, I want to commend you. You reached out um, pretty early on when actnow came out, and Pretty emotive uh, email. I could tell that you know this was not a, a passive email, um, and you brought up some very valid points. And I certainly listened to them, and I I agreed with ninety nine point nine percent of what you're saying. Um, and I think I, I think it's really important that we you know we all make sure we we let our voices be heard for wildlife management and sticking to science based. Uh, principles. Um, and, and I think that, you know, any chance that we can work together moving forward to sort of communicate that to our elected officials to make sure they stay the course is uh, yeah, is pretty definitely. important. So.
2: We're all fighting the same fight. <laughs> cool. Great. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This was really exciting. And, uh, yeah, thanks for all the great work that you do.
1: Yeah, and can we get you back? So once you're done your, like, you reach out to us once you've done your thesis. And, like, whenever whenever you can talk about it, I'd like to talk about the findings um, and, and go into all that stuff, especially the non-consumptive user aspect in the backcountry and the effects it's having. You know, that's something that with Wild Sheep we're very concerned about. Uh, you know, you put a mountain biking trail through prime, you know, lambing habitat or something like that. Um, it's something mm-hmm. that we're concerned about, right? So obviously we want people to be in the backcountry and have an opportunity to use it, but also we want to see places where wild sheep can be wild. Um, yeah, and definitely. All other I'll definitely do, right? contact so. you
2: about that. Um, yeah, non-consumptive recreation is a whole, whole other of can podcast. of worms. Um, <laughs> but it's really important, and I think in BC right now, especially, people don't realize that they do have an impact on wildlife, even though they aren't That's consuming right. it.
1: That's right.
2: So yeah, if we could do another podcast on just that, that would be that be great. <laughs>
1: Uh, no, I, seriously, I'd love to. I think it's really important. And it's really interesting. If you look down south, um, like in California and stuff, there's people going through these, um, you know, uh, out down there that like thousands of people per day on these trails, right? The, like, you know, the, the hiking in, um, in the Rockies and stuff. It, like, literally, it's just person after person after person and and just even Mm -hmm. that like the waste and and all that aspect of it um there's so much such an impact and we're very lucky in beautiful british columbia that we have a very small population base but we know that's changing right so what does bc look like when there's 20 million or 40 million people and we have to ask ourselves that we have to start having those conversations (laughs) so i even. It is, no, yeah. sure. it is, but even we can't ignore advisor it. Even though right? brought up a really
2: good point last week, we are kind of talking about changing the historical baselines and kind of shifting into like a new normal of conservation. But even just with the example of Jasper National Park, where we recently lost another caribou herd off the landscape. And it's like, you have the protected area, you have the habitat. What else is happening? That's right. And it's not just habitat. Um, it's all these other aspects. And it being a national park might say something about that. So interesting
1: stuff for sure. Yeah. Lots of challenges ahead. Um, and, and you're just getting going. So, um, we're going to look to you to save wildlife in British Columbia. So yeah, no big deal. Nothing serious. A little bit of weight. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Laura, thanks for your time and uh, have a wonderful day.